Right, I'll give you a minute to get to that page. It's 1039. Uh, the reference is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 50. All right, so starting at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or fit for, forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after, the, after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and they went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men, men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seized him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, 
Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. And he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who has sent me. For it is the one who is the least among you, all who will be the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vashti. And before John comes and unpacks that, we're going to pray a prayer that was written by John Calvin many hundreds of years ago to ask for illumination on this passage that uh, John's going to preach. So we'll say this together. Grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness, and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words, and may we stir ourselves more and more to fear your name, and thus present ourselves in all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us, until you gather us to your celestial habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would it be a great help to me if you could uh, open your Bibles again, if if they're not open, and just go back to page 1039. We've prayed that the Lord would shine on us from heaven through his word. And we're coming to the end of our series in Luke's Gospel uh, over the autumn. Uh, We've got to that point in Jesus' ministry where if we look at chapter 9, verse 51, just over the page, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And most think that Luke's Gospel is split into two, chapters uh, 1 to 9, and then the rest. So we'll be looking at the rest in the summer. Don't worry, um, those of us in the student group will be carrying on in Luke's Gospel in the new year, trying to get that familiar to ourselves. But I want us to uh, consider um, a question as we begin. You'll see that there's questions that are it'd be great to discuss at the end of our uh, the, the talk this morning. Uh, we'll get into groups and talk about those questions or, or just reflect on them on your own and do ask any question you want of me uh, at the end of our time together. But the question is, how do you think about yourself? How do you think about yourself? Because we we live in a world, don't we, which is increasingly obsessed with how we think about ourselves. Self-esteem. Self-worth. self identity if we're involved in education, 
or healthcare, or even if we just live in the West, we will be pumped full of the idea that we've got to think about ourselves rightly. We've got to think highly enough of ourselves. I mean, self-esteem and too low self-esteem is a disaster, is it not? I don't know how we experience this. Maybe it's from the perspective of sound bites and advertising. The M&S advert has rightly been slated, I think, because it tells us to make Christmas this-mus, not that-mus. What does that mean? Well, it means make Christmas about all the things that you want to do, all the things that make you happy. This-mus, not other people, that-mus. So whether it's making sure you don't play board games, you just throw them in the fish tank, or whether you don't send Christmas cards, because that's too other person focused, you know, you just torch them. Uh, and you don't do the sort of kiddie decorating with little bits of cotton wool, you burn that as well. And if, you, you know, if you're tempted to do something, you know, family-centered with crackers, no, just shred them, and that's far more enjoyable. Make it all about you. And presumably they've done their market research. They know that that message will sell because we're pumped full of the idea that we just make everything about little old me. Some of us are old enough to remember the L'Oreal advert. How does it go? You're worth it. Or I was listening to uh, the radio and out, out came uh, an advert. I think it was for Premier Inn. And do you know what the phrase was? You do you. You do you. Follow your heart. I could go on and on and on, couldn't I? The, the, the mantras that we hear that make much of ourselves. But maybe, and I know for some of you, you will be in this uh, category, you, uh, you think of it from a philosophical perspective, whether it's Descartes' starting point, I think, therefore I am. That's the basis of all modern philosophy, is it not? whether it's then developed with Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Emile, he, he quotes this, there is in the depths of our souls the, uh, an innate principle of justice and virtue according to which, in spite of our own maxims, we judge our actions and those of others as good or bad. In other words, we start with me because I'm basically good. That's what Rousseau taught. Or Nietzsche, having proclaimed the death of God and all theological thinking, declares in gay science, for one thing is needful, that a human being should attain satisfaction with himself. That, this is the world that we live in, and I wonder, just wonder whether it affects any of us. Whether it seeps in to the way we think about ourselves. And whether as we come to the teaching of Jesus, I know it does for me, I presume it does for all of us, that the teaching of Jesus Christ is therefore uncomfortable. It's countercultural, as it always has been. You see, according to Jesus, human centeredness, human self centeredness is not new. It's as old as the Garden of Eden and the rejection and rebellion of humanity against God, a, a preference of making man the measure of all things which is a very, very old statement. But Jesus teaches that self-obsession, narcissism, curving in on ourselves, thinking about ourselves from ourselves, is a highway to hell. 
and not the sort of fun ACDC version. No, the real one. This is what he says. If you want to save yourself, deny yourself. If you want to be first, be least. That's what he taught. That's what he lived. So our first point this morning and the first set of questions that you've got on your tables, deny self to save self because Jesus is the crucified Christ. He's the crucified Christ. Let's pick it up from verse 18 of chapter 9. Jesus was praying in, a private, in private and his disciples were with him. He, he always prayed, Luke records, before significant moments in his ministry. And then he asks them, but what about you, verse 20? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. God's chosen king, the Christ, the title from the Old Testament promised to David that we were just singing about. What does Jesus do? Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. I mean, why not? He's just been rightly identified as being God's Messiah, prophesied for thousands of years. Peter has finally got it. He says, don't, don't mention it. Well, because he had to teach them what kind of Messiah he was going to be. He wasn't going to be a political ruler who would defeat their enemies. He'd come to achieve a greater redemption, a greater rescue, the rescue from sin and death, the devil and hell which we all naturally choose from ourselves. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the Lord. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus knew he was going to be the crucified Christ, the Christ who'd come to die, to suffer, to pour out himself, and so he then says, verse 23, whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Like master, so the follower. If the master's going to the cross, and clearly he knew he was, so he needs to teach his followers this is the way. Why? Verse 24. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. See, being saved is not something that we can achieve. It's been achieved for us through Jesus' death on the cross. And living, truly living, is not what we satisfy ourselves with, but the one who has satisfied God for us. The one who lived the perfect life, who never sinned, and yet was treated on the cross as if he deserved death and hell. See, losing our lives for one who is infinitely greater than we are is actually what gaining our lives is. Living for Jesus is to gain 
what life is all about. God created the universe, a relationship of love, the Holy Trinity. And he always planned to send his son into the world to become a human being and to die on the cross for people like you and me to glorify his son and to save people like you and me. You see, the universe is not about you and me. It's about Jesus Christ. If we think Jesus is not worth our whole lives, we have misunderstood what the whole universe is about. Tim Keller in his book, I've uh, put the books on the uh, various chats. Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Talks of the pop star of the last 40 years, or one of them, uh, Madonna. I'm sure you've come across her. And she says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. I still have to prove that I am somebody. And my struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Despite all that she has achieved, all the fame and the wealth, Keller comments that she illustrates this principle that my ego, myself, cannot be satisfied. And Nietzsche says we've got to try and satisfy ourselves, but we can't. My sense of self, Keller says, my desire for self-worth, my need to be sure I am some, somebody, is not fulfilled. Why? Well, because my ego is insatiable. It's a, a black hole. It doesn't matter how much I throw into it, whether it's fame and fortune, the cupboard says color is bare. I keep putting all sorts of things into it every morning, feeding it, and the next night, it's bare. See, if we think to ourselves, how can I save my life? How can I do what is best for me? How can I make the decisions that are best for my interest? How can I satisfy myself in my career, in my love life, in my earning power, my housing? My housing? How will I get satisfaction? It will never work because we are made for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ we are made for the most important person in the universe which is not us it's Jesus so of course if we try and satisfy ourselves with something that is created we're not designed to be satisfied by something that is created be it our spouse, or our wealth, or our home, or our career progression, or our children. We are designed to be satisfied by God alone. We're not made to exist for ourselves. We're made to exist for Jesus Christ. He knows that. So he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Is that not quite arrogant, if it's not true? To say, actually, Jesus is saying this, you won't find any satisfaction, you will lose your life if you live for anybody or anything else except me. It's clear all the way through Luke's Gospel. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. As the great theologian Augustine put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Now let's just be clear here. Jesus is not advocating masochism. He's not saying, don't look after yourself or your body. 
No, he's not saying you earn your salvation by doing costly things, whether they are relevant or not, whether it's wearing hair shirts or climbing stairs with your knees. No, rather live for the most valuable being in the universe, the only being who can satisfy us, who can save us, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if we're just investigating the Christian faith, this is really difficult to get our heads around because you will have been brought up with the idea that you are the center of the universe. It's poison. It's damning poison. See, how can anything be more important than ourselves, to ourselves? Only the one who made us has the right to say something like that. Only the one who died in the place of people like you and me to redeem us from ourselves can be worth living for. And that's outside us. We're not born with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need to receive Jesus Christ. And this is why he gives us images to help us understand this. He's like living water that we have to drink. He's like the bread of life that we have to eat he has to get inside us for us to have this wholesome relationship with ourselves, which is based on a relationship with him. He's the living bread. Only if we trust in him will we not hunger again, according to John 6. Only if we trust in him will we not be thirsty again. And we can easily forget this as Christians, can't we? Can't we? Oh, I forget it. Most days, I think. I mean, I don't know if you ever think like this. Oh, why am I doing the kids' work again? Again? I've got, I've got the energy. It's a bit costly. Well, why have I signed up for the live nativity? I didn't realise I was going to be this busy at this point in the term, and now I've got to learn these lines and I've got to sing this. Well, why did I say to serving this way again? Or in my case, why am I preaching again? We're faced with coming to the end of our strength. We're feeling the squeeze. We're in pain. And of course, this is not to, to excuse taking on too much or saying yes to too many things. Maybe some of us need to say no a bit more. Some of us may need to manage our diaries a bit better. But no, self-denial is part of the Christian life. It's an inescapable part if we want to follow Jesus, what does he say in verse 23? We must deny ourselves and take up our crosses, painful kind of thing, daily. Really? Seems a bit sort of negative about yourself, doesn't it? See, if we think the Christian life is all about feelings of self-satisfaction rather than being thrown on our need for Jesus because we've come to the end of our strength... And if we are starting to think that serving until it, it hurts is somehow being masochistic, then we need to remember what Jesus is saying to his original hearers and what many Christians hear throughout the world. You follow Jesus, you could be killed. It's not just a metaphorical cross for these original hearers, is it? Peter was crucified upside down because he thought they'd been crucified the same way as Jesus was too good for him. 
the Apostle Andrew was crucified like that for the same reason. No, for many Christians, following Jesus means they will maybe not be crucified, but killed. Is it still worth it? See, writing to ordinary Christians, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you, literally graced to you, given to you, behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It's God's gift if we suffer with and for Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Now, if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed... We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We're going to glory, so we will suffer. Or if we want to be going to glory, we will be those who take up our crosses daily and deny ourselves. But we might say, well, what good is it for someone to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to be killed within a week, or to have a, a life that is not as successful in terms of Health and wealth and family and promotion and career and status. What's, why is that a good thing? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 25, he knows he is the only one who can save people's souls. He's the only one who's going to die in the place of people and rise again for them. And so he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? and yet lose or forfeit their very self. See, if we're thinking about whether we follow Jesus or not, and there's a, there's a cost involved to following Jesus, and even if that cost is tomorrow you will be killed, you've, you've chosen the right option. And if you don't follow Jesus because you will inherit the whole world... If you could do that and not follow Jesus, you've, you've chosen the wrong option. Someone in Austria has just won 200 million in the Euro millions, haven't they? If they choose that over following Jesus, it's a bad deal. If Elon Musk, I'm not sure whether he's still the wealthiest person in the world, but owner of Tesla and Twitter or X, whatever it's called now, He's worth 248 billion. That's quite a lot. But if he chooses that over trusting in Jesus Christ, he's got a bad deal. Because there's only one person who will satisfy the soul. There's only one who will rescue us from death and judgment and hell, and it's Jesus Christ. 248 billion is not going to do much for Elon Musk on the day of judgment if he doesn't have Jesus Christ. Well, I hope he does trust in Jesus Christ. But maybe he might think that he's going to get its satisfaction with all the things he can do with 248 billion. It's going to be tempting, isn't it? Because it's going to be painful to own the name of Jesus Christ in this world. And he recognizes that. But he tries to focus the mind. Verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the words in this book, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. 
when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, in this Advent season, we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, don't we? He's coming to judge all of humanity with the glory of the Father and the glory of all the angels, whether they wish or not. I think they'll probably do a bit more than wishing. He will send all the angels of heaven to collect all of humanity who have ever lived. He will raise them all with a word, and he will call us each by name to stand before him and give an account not just of all our deeds, but of all our innermost thoughts from the moment we were born until the moment we have died. Do we want his verdict to be one in which he is ashamed of us or one in which he says, come, welcome into the kingdom of my heavenly father. Enjoy the rest that's been prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. Come and enjoy Or do we want him to say, depart from me? I never knew you. Yes, there is a cost to living for Jesus. There is a cost to serving Jesus. There is suffering and self-denial and pain involved. But can't we see the benefits? It's not a cost. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? To trust in Jesus and to live for him. But it does mean we deny ourselves. Deny self to save self because Jesus is the crucified Christ. That's what the rest of Luke's gospel is about, really. But then, secondly, be least to be great because Jesus is the glorious and majestic crucified Christ. There's, there's no doubt in any of the gospel writers of the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God, as we confess in the creeds. And he says in verse 27, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about to come. Some of the disciples are going to see it. It's pretty obvious what he means. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Here is the king in his glory, in his kingdom. And there's Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, which he's just about to set his face towards, representing the law and the prophets. But then comes this voice, after Peter has sort of gibbered around a bit and just doesn't, clearly doesn't know what to say, and just sort of opens his mouth and whatever comes out, out it comes. And, and then the voice, the voice, comes, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Do we? Do we listen to the voice of Jesus, or was that the last time God spoke from heaven with glory? No, we are hearing God's voice, his speech to us through the, the words of the Bible. We may, we may never read the Bible. Can I encourage you to read the Bible? Grab a gospel, listen to the voice of God in one of the Gospels. And this really happened. It wasn't invite, it invented. Peter writes in 2 Peter that he didn't make this up. He was there on the mountain. 2 Peter chapter 2, if you want to read it later. He was there. He heard the voice. He saw the glory of Jesus. 
And then Jesus comes down the mountain and he heals this boy. And what do they say? They were all amazed at the greatness of God. The majesty, literally, of God. The same kind of experience that was on the mountain is now experienced as Jesus acts to heal this boy. They've seen the greatness, the majesty of Jesus. What does he do? Well, everyone was marveling at what at all that Jesus did. And we've seen amazing things Jesus do over the last few weeks in Luke's Gospel, haven't we? He says to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. This glorious one, this majestic one, this son of God will be delivered into the hands of men. This is no accident. This is part of the plan of God. But they don't get it. And then they start arguing in verse 46 as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you, all who is the greatest. Jesus totally reverses the world's values. The one who is the glorious one, whose clothes shone like lightning and still do, the one who is so majestic in the way he acts, went to the cross bled and died for people like you and me was supremely humble gave his attention to prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and so could say with authority the one who is least among you all who is the greatest whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me what's he saying Stay with me, because our sort of our view of self will really make it difficult for us to understand this, I think. See, children were far more insignificant in the first century than they are today. Children were really not worth very much. You could throw away babies on rubbish heaps. That's what the Greeks and Romans did. They were refuse until about 12, when you could teach them the Bible, and then they might become significant. But Jesus takes a child who is way younger than 12, we know that from other Gospels, and says, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. You see, the disciples were comparing each other. You know, who, who's, who's greatest? You know, who's going to get the top jobs in the kingdom? Who, who's a greater preacher than the others? Who's better at healing? Comparison. Jesus says their attitude should not be about comparison, but welcome of all. Welcoming the least means we've thrown out the attitude of comparison. We've welcomed Jesus' way of relating to people, defined by the cross. You see, we think it's, it's good to feel good about ourselves. 
to feel good about our power and glory and, and majesty in comparison to others. We're doing better than others in our academic performance. We're achieving more in our earning power. We're being more caring and kind than other people in the church. We're more sociable. We're more intelligent. Is that how Jesus acted? No. The majestic one, the glorious one, the Son of God, bled and died for people like you and me, who are just a little bit smaller than God. Can we see God's attitude to the least? He'll die for them. We're... Many of us are Christians here this morning. Our thinking is so far away from this, often, is it not? Do you come into church and think, who's going to talk to me? Do you come into church thinking, how will people think about me? Do you come into church thinking, oh, it's a bit of a struggle for me. Or do we come into church thinking like Jesus? How can I welcome the smallest child? Somebody who's just stumbled into church. They're the least here. I'm, I'm for them. I just want to serve them. I'd die for them. Is that how we think? But Jesus commands us, love one another as I have loved you. We're miles away. I'm miles away. In Philippians, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. How many of us come to church with the prayer on our lips? Lord, how can I serve others? What can I do for others? Oh, I'm feeling pretty rubbish. I've hardly got the energy to get here, but Lord, strengthen me to get here to serve others, to do what Jesus did. See, in your relationships, Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Actually, he says it a bit more firmly than that. He says, you have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Though God, he took the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Be least. To be great. Because Jesus is the glorious and majestic crucified Christ. I'll just pray and then it'll be good. Anything that's been helpful, anything that has challenged us to think, let's talk about the questions that you have on your tables. And, and let's think how, how we need to change the way we think about ourselves. So that we think about ourselves like Jesus teaches us to. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you did not consider equality with God, though you were and are God, Lord Jesus, to be grasped at, to be something you stood upon, but instead you left heaven and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that people like us can be forgiven and given life and satisfied with you, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you. And Lord, we're sorry that we so easily drift away from following you and following your example. Please, by your spirit, help us to think less 
about ourselves and more about what you call us to, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just um, two or three minutes to begin conversations on those questions or anything else you want to talk about that's from the sermon. Um, So two or three minutes just to start discussing how we put this into practice in our lives.